You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Um, if you'd like, take a moment to turn there with me. Uh, there are Bibles in your pew. I'll be reading from the NLT this evening. Um, and please stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. Again, the passage is Mark 5, 21 through 43. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately, the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that the healing power had gone out from him, so he turned in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, Look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. While he was still speaking to her messengers, Speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, Your daughter is dead. There is no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just have faith. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, Why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead, she is only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave, and he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha Kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened, And then he told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. 
Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're glad that you're with us this evening. We're looking at the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a kid's Bible that also is a Bible that adults can get a lot out of. Um, it is a beautiful, illustrated, um, hardback book that I encourage you all to get if you don't have one. Um, the subtitle is Every Story Whispers His Name, because it's about how the Bible, the entire Bible, is uh, every story is about actually... Jesus. They all point to Jesus. And we see that in this passage, actually, because we see him in this passage. But the big story of the Bible, I mean, every, no matter where you're coming from, whether you're a believer, a Christian, and not, not a Christian, uh, even people who are atheists like I once used to be, we all have a story about what reality is like. You know, we all are telling ourselves an unprovable story. There's no way to prove uh, final reality, but uh, we all are basing our lives on some story that we have inherited. And here's the Christian story. The Christian story is that God, there is a single all-powerful God who is three persons in one, which is why he can be loved, because he has three persons to love before there's any creation. So he who is love himself, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, makes a world uh, that is perfect. And in that perfect world on one planet, uh, he puts human beings, we are who are made in his image. So in the Christian story, human beings are completely unique, not like the other animals. We are an animal, but we're also completely unique. And the way that we're unique is that we image God. It says we're made in God's image, male and female. So as these two gendered species, we image God. We shine forth God as both genders, and we reflect to everyone around us uh, the glory that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit inherently is. And he put us, uh, Adam and Eve, in a garden, and from that garden, he asked us to spread his glory around the entire world. So they start as these two people in this one garden, and from there we have spread out, even as far as Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Human beings have spread across the whole planet. And what we were made to do is to reflect back to God and to other people how glorious God is, the, the glory of God's love. And so um, that's called dominion. He wanted us, in the same way that God made uh, chaos into order, he wants us to take the chaos of the natural world and make order out of that. And in so doing, glorify God. That's called dominion. And we were supposed to be like little, kind of like chess pieces all around the world that show forth God's dominion across the world. Instead, we decided that we were going to do things my way. You know, I'm going to do it my way. Uh, And we decided to cut God out of the picture. And we were going to be boss. And we weren't going to tell, let anyone tell us what to do. And so... In trying to set up on our own, apart from God, we spread domination rather than dominion. And whenever there's dominion under the grace of God, under the glory of God, there's always going to be shalom, which is a big, it's a, it's a Hebrew concept that is one of the most important Hebrew concepts in the Bible. We translate it into peace, but shalom means uh, you are at peace with yourself, primarily, and all the four major relationships you're, you're at peace with yourself. You and your body are at peace, so you're, there's a wholeness to it. You're also at peace with other people, so that relationship is restored. And then most importantly, you're at peace with God. So shalom is all four of those, self, body, others, God. There's shalom is peace. And that shalom that was in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve had has been shattered. Because when we decided to set up on our own, become our own gods, uh, we spread domination instead of dominion, and it shattered everything. But the rescue plan that God immediately put in place was that one day there's going to be someone coming that is called uh, the secret rescue plan, that, that one day someone was coming who would restore shalom. 
And that Israel was supposed to be a kind of a a preparation for this coming uh, Messiah who would restore Shalom. And, of course, we see him in this passage. And so when, when this family of Shalom embodied by Jesus, who is the true, you know, Israelite, the family of Israel embodied by Jesus, when Shalom comes, then you see healing in all four areas. You see healing in people's bodies, as you see in this woman, as you see in this girl. You see healing within people's own psyches. You see healing with other people. And then primarily you see healing with God. So I want to look at the way that God always moves towards brokenness. And he moves into brokenness with shalom. He's always moving towards brokenness with shalom. That's what this passage is about. So first of all, let's look at him moving towards human brokenness in all its forms. You have two desperate people in this passage that are very different. So you have Jairus and you have the bleeding woman. Now, they're both living in Capernaum, and um, he is the most respected person in town. Back then, rabbis were the most respected people in town. That's not true of preachers anymore, which is probably good for us. But uh, he was the most respected person in town, and she would have been among uh, the most unclean people in town that you really wouldn't want to be very near. So they're extremely different in that way. Uh, He would probably be the most well-known person in town, and she would be among the least well-known if anyone knew her. And yet, they're also 100% the same because they are absolutely desperate in their brokenness. Uh, They risk everything to get shalom. Um, It says in verse 22, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue and and he fell at his feet. So this is um, Jesus, public enemy number one to the religious elites at the time. Uh, Jairus's... um, Boss, who would have been someone like in the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee from Jerusalem. Jairus' boss and all of Jairus' parishioners would have hated Jesus. So imagine the pressure on this man um, who would have taken a lot of flack from his city. Uh, They are watching Jairus beg, falling at the feet of Jesus. He risks everything to to come. This is social suicide to come to this man who, as far as Jairus knows, he doesn't really know exactly who Jesus is. He's just heard rumors about him. But at this point in his life, his reputation is gone and his job is gone. Because he is, uh, he is now bowing to the feet of a social pariah, Jesus. And if you've ever had a child suffer deeply, and I know some of you have, you know that you would do anything, anything at all. You'd lose your job, you would lose all your reputation in order to heal that child. And that's what's going on with Jairus. Now, if he risked his reputation, his job, and his friends, uh, she risked her very life. Because this woman, um, in coming into a crowd, could have been stoned if they had found out she was unclean. You were not allowed uh, to come into a crowd and be unclean and untouchable. You would have infected people. And so if somebody had found out who she was and that she had this bleeding issue for 12 years, uh, they, they'd have could have possibly stoned her so she is barely you can tell her anxiety because she's barely even to reach out willing to reach out and touch his garment much less hug him or run up to him um she's trying to keep silent uh because they're both both of them are absolutely shattered um in every single way they they have lost uh wholeness shalom and 
the first thing I thought about when I was preaching through this passage was um, we've got to be really careful about looking at each other and saying, you know, she, has, she, she could not have any idea what I'm going through right now. Or he, uh, he could never understand the pain that I'm feeling right now in my life. I mean, if you're looking at these two, you would think there's no way that they would have anything in common. And if they were sitting in church together, looking at one another, they would both think uh, they could never understand me. Uh, you know, whether it's your singleness uh, or your divorce or your broken family or your lost child or whatever it is, we all tend to look around at each other and think they're, they're, not, they're not like me. They can't understand me. They can never get me. I mean, here's a no-name woman and a big-name Jairus, and they're, they're, there's no way she could ever imagine that Jairus, as a wealthy, um, uh, highly favored uh, leader in the community, could ever understand what she's going through. And yet he's suffering deeply. So I'm telling you not to judge by appearances, not to compare your suffering to anyone else, not to look at them and how they're dressed and how much money they have and how much they present themselves as charismatic and winsome. Do not judge one another's suffering or pain. You just can't do that. Um, it'd be like you know, two TV screens that have been smashed by a rock trying to count the number of cracks in the TV screen and compare themselves to one another. Uh, we have both been, we've all been smashed. Uh, we've all been shattered. You know, the, the height from which we have fallen in Eden to where we are now, it's, you know, we might be that far apart, but it's a long drop. It's a long way down. And so we are all extremely broken. And Jesus comes in, and he's like a bloodhound. If you've ever seen a bloodhound sniffing around, their nose is like always on the ground, and they're just constantly moving around, and they're trying to catch that scent of blood. But in the case of Jesus, uh, the scent that he's trying to pick up is the scent of brokenness, of people that are suffering, uh, of people that are in need, whether they're suffering in their body, there's something wrong with them, like chronic illness, or their daughter's about to die, or they are suffering within themselves in some kind of psychic pain, mental illness, or their relationships with everyone else around them is broken, or they think God hates them. Jesus is always heading towards that. It says in 24, it simply says Jesus went with him. Now, he, he might have, at that point, he probably had a pretty big crowd around him. So Jesus, Jesus is leaving the sanctuary like this, you know, a, a large group of people, and just walking out to be with this one man because he smells brokenness. And he will stop anything um, to get to brokenness. And even crazier, on the way to meet Jairus' daughter who's dying... Remember now, she's dying, and on the way from, from wherever he was preaching to get to Jairus' daughter, uh, he comes up against this woman, and he stops. And it says in verse 30, he immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched me? Like he's looking around in the crowd for who touched him. Now, of course, we know that she just barely touched him on the hem of his garment with her one finger, and yet he realizes that immediately, and he's like, who, who touched me? And uh, Tim Keller, a preacher that I like, he calls this divine malpractice. Because you've got this girl uh, who is about to die. So like she's like in the ICU about to die. And then this woman who has had a chronic illness for 12 years. She can wait. You know, the disciples are saying, why don't you go and heal the girl and then come back and deal with the woman? She is not going to die. The girl's about to die. And the disciples um, 
are just pulling out their hair when he stops. Because their calculus and his calculus are so different from one another. And I would submit the same is true for you and him. That when, when you think about what, what motivates you, uh, it is not what motivates the Son of God. That he is always here looking around for people who are broken. And uh, you might think that your pain is of no interest to him. But it says in verse 32, he looked around to see who had done it. Um, he, 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 he doesn't even know who did it. And he's in this huge crowd and he's looking around. He's, he's so intent on healing her. You know, you think uh, he's got bigger fish to fry. All these people in Ukraine and Saskatchewan and Memphis are suffering terribly. And who, you know, I'm just little poor me. I'll often ask people how I can pray for them when I meet with them. And they're like, oh, I don't, I, I, my needs are nothing compared to, you know, just pray for the suffering of this world or something like that. And Jesus is like, no, I want to know your suffering. Uh, nothing happening in your body or your mind or your relationships is too small for me, too unimportant for me. I care about every part of your brokenness. I just think of him sniffing around for even the scent of desperation. You know, where is she? I know she's here. Where is she? He's, um, he's desperate to get to brokenness. And so ask yourself, what part of you is shattered? Which of those four relationships is most um, broken for you. And now listen to this phrase from the Storybook Bible. This is from uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones' own words. This is how she translates this story from the Storybook Bible. And this is, what he, this is what she writes. Jesus, he pleaded, my daughter, please. Jesus reached out his hand and helped up Jairus and said, I'll come at once. And so Jairus's eyes filled with tears And he said, Jesus is coming. It'll be all right. He rushes into pain like air automatically rushes into a vacuum. Whenever there's a vacuum, air rushes in there. And it's so comforting to know that uh, he cares that much, that that he sits with us in our tears, that he groans with us in our pain. It's incredibly comforting. But I would say if that's all he does, if he just went up and hugged the woman, and if he just went over and hugged Jairus, and that's it, then it wouldn't be enough. Uh, we need more than simply one who comforts us and who sympathizes with us and our weakness. We need someone who brings in shalom. And that's what he alone can do. He, he has omnipotent shalom that he comes to offer both of these two people. So um, that's the second point, is that uh, he who is peace in himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he brings that uh, Almighty peace into the lives of both the woman and the girl. Verse 30 says, uh, Jesus perceived inside himself that power had gone out from him. I don't know what this tells us about the inner life of Jesus and his psychology, but apparently at the moment that she touched him, some kind of power went out of his body into her body, made her clean, and he knew it. And I wonder how many times uh, that happened whenever he healed people. Certainly some transactions such as that must have happened. Some exchange of powers. There's a great scene in the, uh, the miniseries called The Chosen where you see Jesus healing people all day long, laying hands on them and healing them. And then that night he kind of stumbles into his tent and just falls down in exhaustion. 
And you wonder how much it took out of him to heal these people. Power has gone out of him. And the mere garment of Jesus that that he's wearing, it's not even his body, but simply by her touching that, she's healed. Imagine that you brush up against my shoelace and you have COVID and you're really sick. And as soon as you brush up against my shoelace, like instantly all the symptoms go away, you feel great. That'd be amazing. But this is 12 years of a chronic blood condition that no doctor could heal. Verse 26 should be on every doctor's desk. Uh, She suffered much under many physicians and spent all her money and was not better but worse. That'd be a good thing for anyone in medicine to put on their desk. Um, No doctor can heal her. Jesus not only heals her body, but he heals her relationships. I mean, he could have silently healed her and walked on. He knew the power went out from him and he knew she was healed, but he didn't just move on. He wanted to do more. He wanted to heal her relationships. He wanted to lift her up and make her a daughter of Israel again, a daughter of Abraham. He wanted her to be known by the whole city of Capernaum as someone who could come to synagogue and was welcome into the fellowship of people. And so verse 31, again, he says, who touched me? Because he wants her to identify herself. He wants her to come out of hiding and be seen and be restored. And I love verse 33. I can't imagine what it would have been like for her. If you've been called out by a teacher or had to go in front of the class, that would be nothing compared to the fear of this. She came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Incredibly scary, but incredibly healing to let, I mean, I don't even know how long that would have taken. He might've been listening to her for five, 10 minutes. Meanwhile, Jairus is like trembling with fear and anxiety, but he's just sitting there listening to all of this. And then I imagine him turning around and scanning the whole crowd and saying to everybody, and then looking at her, daughter of Israel, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, shalom, and be healed. And he not, he not only wants her to know that, actually she already has been healed. He wants her to know that, but he wants them to know that. Because he wants them to worship, to welcome her back into the people. He wants body, self, God, others, all four parts of shalom. He wants it all healed. I mean, think about how she saw herself after that. It would have changed her own self-perception enormously to now be welcomed into the people of Israel. He calls her daughter. Daughter. Which is a sign that she is now, again, a child of Abraham. Worshipping in the synagogue. Hugging people again in the synagogue. Think about where you have been socially outcast or excluded or repelled. And just know that that's what Jesus came to heal. He came to take care of that as much as he did bodies that were sick. As much as he came to take care of guilt between you and God. He, all of it. Shalom everywhere. Uh, the story of the Bible says, uh, the disciples said to him, we don't have time for this, Jesus. But Jesus always had time. He reached out, gently lifted her head, looked into her eyes and smiled. You believed, he said, wiping a tear from her eye. And now you are well. At this point, as I said, uh, Jairus is unable to stand it. The fact that she is taking all of the attention from Jesus. The fact that he is wasting all this time. And then suddenly, right when his anxiety is at a level of 10, some person comes in, some messenger comes into the scene and says the very words that he was most dreading to hear. 
Verse 35, your daughter's dead. And it's kind of terse in Greek. It's very angry. Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As the story of the Bible says, it's too late. Your daughter's dead. And then Jesus, I imagine him again grabbing Jairus' face, which has now fallen down, looking him in the eyes and saying, listen to me. It's not too late. Trust me. I've got this. And he, uh, he just cuts right through all the circus of cynicism that's going on around Jairus. Uh, all of this uh, professional mourners, they're like ambulance chasers that are, have gathered. Uh, they're paid money to wail, but they're not really sad. They're just doing that to make money. All these mourners, verse 38, Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Uh, the fact that you can tell they're insincere is because a second later they're laughing at him. They're mocking him. Like, who does he think he is? Think he can raise the dead? You know, who do you think you are? Pretending to be able to heal like that. And his, his response to these uh, professional mourners, to Jairus, to everyone around, is so beautifully sincere. Um, he just says in verse 39, why such a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. I mean, they could not have imagined the possibility of this daughter being raised back from death. Why such a commotion and weeping? You know, Jesus reaches into our deeply buried pain where we do not want to think about anymore. We don't want to dredge those wounds up into our darkest sarcasm and the icy cynicism we feel. And he says, your pain is not of minor importance to me. I will go into that pain. I will move into that pain. Your pain is not mission adjacent. You know, people always say adjacent these days. I don't know what that means, but it's not mission adjacent to the coming of Christ into this world. Human pain is right at the heart of why he's here. And so it says, again, in the Storybook Bible, Jesus sat on her bed, took her pale hand. Honey, he said, it's time to get up. And he reached down into death, and he brought the girl back to life. I love that line. He reached down into death and brought her back to life. Omnipotent shalom. He moves into our brokenness. Uh, the, uh, the best Stephen King movie, I think, is um, not the Shawshank Redemption, actually. It's, I think it's The Green Mile. That's actually the, the one that made the most money, so I feel good about saying that. Um, in The Green Mile, uh, there's a, uh, a man on death row named John Coffey, uh, this large African-American man, uh, beautiful man, innocent, uh, accused of uh, rape and murder. Uh, but he has this special power. You know, he's on death row in this horrible Louisiana prison, but he has this amazing special power of healing. And the way he heals, for whatever reason, I always think about that as the way Jesus healed. Because in the book of uh, in Matthew, there's one time where he's healing people, and uh, it says that this was to fulfill what Isaiah spoke, that he took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. So when, when Jesus is healing people, uh, Matthew's saying that's what Isaiah was prophesying. That he was going to take our illness into himself. And what John Coffey does is um, he actually sucks disease out of people. And it's really beautifully portrayed in the movie. And so even as he is waiting to walk that cursed mile, the mile is what you call it when you walk to death row. Even as John Coffey is waiting to walk that mile, uh, you know, unjustly, uh, unjustly in prison, he actually cures the, the wife of the warden of the prison. 
And he, he, what he does is he breathes in. She has an inoperable brain tumor, and he just breathes that into himself. John Coffey, he takes it in himself. And this is the line um, that he says, I am tired of the pain I hear and feel. I am tired of people being ugly to each other. It feels like pieces of glass in my head and nails in my hands. And I think about that line. I think about what he did, what the real greater John Coffey did. Um, by mending things, uh, he was broken himself. Again, the story of the Bible says Jesus was making all the sad things come untrue by mending God's broken world. And he mended that world by himself being broken, by taking in all the broken Remember, we love these rascals.